0: Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 46, The Alpha and the Omega. And in this episode, I would like to conclude the introductory section of the book of Revelation, which ends with verse 8. And in this episode, that is all I would like to take a look at, is just verse 8, as we come to grips with just who the character and nature of our God is, and what relevance that actually has for the way that we understand the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to focus in on this. You are going to appreciate this episode. Again, we will not make it very far through the book, but you will understand why we are taking our time here because this will illuminate many things for us as we proceed through the book. So let's just jump, jump right in. As we have been doing through many of our episodes, allow me just to read the significant portion of the Bible that I intend to talk about for each episode, which in this case is just going to be Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And then I'd like to make some observations and point out some things for you as you listen. And so here's Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty now I want to share just a couple of insights um, from this verse, and and a few of the ones that I'm about to share with you are, are taken actually from a, a small book um, by the name of the Theology of the Book of Revelation. It's written by a professor named Richard Baucom, and in my opinion, it is the most densely packed and theologically rich 160-page book you will ever come across on the Book of Revelation. And so I will. Try to include a link for it in this episode's notes if you have a spare $30 and would like to purchase an academic scholarly work on the book, feel free to do so. If you don't like to read things like that and don't want to spend $30, I hopefully as we go will make reference to it numerous times and we will try to give you the gist of what he is saying. But... In the little book, um, Bauckham draws our attention to the ways that John has sprinkled statements similar to the one in Revelation 1.8, these statements of self-identification throughout the book of Revelation. And the particular one that I just read is actually one of only two times in the entire book of Revelation where God himself speaks. The the second time includes a similar divine self-declaration and it, it it goes as follows. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it actually appears near the end of the book of Revelation. It actually appears all the way in chapter 21 in verse 6. Now, that's an interesting observation, but all by itself, you know, you might just say, well, that's nice, but, you know, what's the point? Well, Bauckham goes on to point out that these two self-divine self-declarations correspond In a very striking way to two self declarations by jesus christ and here they are chapter one verse eight god speaking i am the alpha and the omega alpha and omega are just the first and last letters of the greek alphabet and so i think you kind of get the idea it's the a and the z right In that same chapter, chapter 1, verse 17, Christ is speaking and he says, I am the first and the last. And then in chapter 21, verse 6, God himself is speaking. This is the second time that God reveals himself in one of these divine self declarations. And he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then in chapter 22, verse 13, Christ is now speaking and he says, I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Bauckham says all of this and points all of this out in little charts in order to say this, the one designation of God, which appears in Revelation as a self-designation by God, also appears as a self-designation by Christ. And so if you and I put two and two together, It seems not only that the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end are actually used interchangeably, but that both Jesus Christ and God by virtue of their use of the same self-identifiers are to be seen as one throughout the book. Now this insight will be made even clearer when we come to chapters four and five, where we'll see that even the worship that the one seated on the throne receives is shared with the lamb who was slain. Now, if there were ever statements in the Bible about the divine nature of Jesus as the son of God, they are right here in the book of Revelation. The phrase that we read about in chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord God, the Almighty, it occurs exactly seven times throughout the book of Revelation, and it is an expanded form of the divine name Yahweh, or Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the way that the Lord revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as the one who I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Now we spent an entire episode in this podcast talking about this divine name, translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D throughout our Bibles, mostly in the Old Testament. And this was episode eight, introducing the Lord. And if you have not listened to that episode, I would highly encourage you to do so. I will repeat a few things that I mentioned there in this episode but there are others that I I won't have the time to, to go back through again. Well, right now in Revelation, the Lord God, the Almighty, right now that divine name is taking center stage. And so what I'd like to do for this episode is to briefly remind you of a point or two that I made in that episode and then build on those thoughts a bit further. Now, what I am about to share may be new to you. You may have never come across anything like this before. Um, maybe this isn't new to you, but I want you to track because I'm going to present something that my, my assumption is that this is going to be somewhat new to you. But I just want you to listen closely to what I'm saying and hang with me. It, it's going to be worth it in the end. The word God is not a name, it's a title. So in the Bible, when people speak of God, there needs to be some clarification regarding just which God you are referring to for Israel. And now, of course, for us, the God they were to worship was the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the one who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And so this is why even in a very familiar passage to many of you in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it begins this way. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So of all the gods you may have thought were powerful enough to bring you out of Egypt, the Lord was the one that did it. Hence, I am the Lord, your God. And so it is important to recognize that Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and God do not mean the same thing. One is a title, the other is a name. And so again, what Exodus 20 verse one is saying is that the God who saved you, Israel, the God you are to worship goes by the name Lord. This is his identity And there are certain characteristics of the Lord that are not shared by other gods. Now, if you've ever wondered why Israel was so tempted toward idolatry in the Old Testament, this distinction may help you make some sense of it. When someone claims to be worshiping God, there may be any number of ideas rolling around in their minds as to just who they imagine God to be. And all around the Israelites were other nations who also worshipped gods and tempted Israel to join them. Of course, you and I know, God is invisible. And so the only way to know which God you were worshipping was by the way that you lived. By the way that you represented or imaged the God you believed was the real God. For Israel then, the issue at stake wasn't just, who is God? The issue at stake was, who is the Lord? And are you rightly imaging him by the way that you live? That will tell you whether or not you are actually worshiping him. So for an Israelite, they could say all day long that they were worshipers of the Lord. But if the way that they lived resembled more closely the characteristics of other gods, then even though they claimed to be worshiping the Lord, they were in actuality worshiping another god. Now, if this is the first time that you have ever come across this idea, it may help you if we look at an Old Testament example to help clarify things for us. So in First Kings 18... The prophet Elijah comes to the Israelite people who, it seems, genuinely do not know whether Baal or the Lord is the real God. Now, it may interest you to know that Israel was tempted by Baal worship more than by any other God throughout the Old Testament. Um, Baal was the God of the storm. He was the one believed to be responsible for sending the rain, which of course was needed to grow the crops, which of course was needed to supply the people with food. So Baal himself came to be known as the god of bread. And all worship of Baal was expressed when concern for one's daily needs or one's survival was made central in the people's lives. If you wanted something to eat, if you wanted to survive, you worship Baal. He's the god of the storm. And without the storm, you're never going to see any rain. To be faithful to Baal then meant that you placed concern for your own survival as your number one priority in this world. And real justice in the world, according to Baal, meant placing your survival At the top of the list, all other issues of justice were secondary. You need to look first after your own survival and only after your own survival is secure, then you can concern yourself with those who can't look after themselves. Those secondary matters of justice. The Lord, however, presents us with a different vision. And the lives of those who worship him look different as well. The Lord, when he first reveals himself as such, does so in response to the cries of an oppressed people. The Lord then shows himself powerful over the Egyptians not to flaunt his strength, but to use his strength to rescue the enslaved Israelite nation. In the Lord's mind, justice was defined primarily as concerning yourself with those who can't look after themselves, the very thing the Lord himself did in choosing to rescue the Israelites. In fact, he refers to himself countless times throughout the Old Testament as the one concerned for the oppressed. Here are a couple of examples. Deuteronomy ten seventeen to 18, the Lord... Your God, same introduction as he gave them in the book of Exodus, this is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord, your God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. Or Zechariah 7, 9 to 10. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. And so you worship the Lord then when you adopt as your first priority the concerns and needs of others. Trusting the Lord himself to then take care of you as you care for others. So this is why the Lord says in Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24, thus says the Lord... And so, to know the Lord is to know Him as a God who is primarily concerned with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And so, if you wish to boast about knowing Him, the best way to go about that is not to draw attention to your wisdom, your might, and your riches as evidence somehow of the greatness of your God, but rather to act in ways that are full of love, justice, and righteousness and to allow the Lord to define for you what love, justice, and righteousness are. And when you learn how he deals in these ways, and you choose to image him in the ways that you deal with others, then you can claim to be worshiping him. Baal says, trust me for your bread. Look after your own needs first, Then concern yourself with others. When people put their own needs first, then they are worshiping Baal. The Lord says, Trust me for your bread. Look after the needs of others first and allow me to meet your needs. So when people look after the needs of others first, they are worshiping the Lord. The question on the table then was which God, which way of life would best ensure that you were taken care of? Baal's way or the Lord's? Which God could ensure survival? Which God brought about the best way to live? Imaging which God produced the best society? the people of Elijah's day genuinely did not know. And I might add that the people of our day genuinely do not know. And so in chapter 18 of First Kings verse 21, we read this. So Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The issue at stake here was which God was really God. Remember, the lifestyles of the followers of each of these gods very closely resembled the kind of God they were actually worshiping. And the people, unfortunately, were conflicted. They were conflicted as a result of King Ahab's Baal worshiping wife, Jezebel. And we will have plenty more to say about Jezebel when we get to Revelation chapter 2. Now, Jezebel wielded tremendous power in Israel, no doubt as a result of her worship of Baal. And she had the people truly wondering which God, Baal or the Lord, was the one with the power. In other words, which God was God. Jezebel was a woman who got things done. Perhaps the God she worshiped, Baal, really was God. After all, the God with the power, the God who didn't mess around and whose followers didn't mess around either, maybe he was the real God. Did power equal real? And if so, what did that power look like? the people didn't know anymore. And so they said nothing in response to Elijah's question. So Elijah calls together all of the prophets of Baal and asks them to prepare a bowl for a sacrifice while he does the same. And then he says this to them in 1 Kings 18, verse 24. You call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. The issue at stake here again was which God was God. Which God would ensure that the people's needs were met. Imaging which God produced the best society. Because the fact is, worship the wrong God and you get the wrong society. Who people believe God is will determine the way that they live. Always. But the God you claim to be imaging goes by different names. And the Old Testament supplies us with all sorts of these names, demonstrating for us quite plainly all manner of injustices toward people that flow from the ways people image The God they believe is God. Now, why have I chosen to bring all of this to your attention? Well, I've chosen to do so because we simply cannot understand the book of Revelation without it. Since the days of Jesus, there have been those... And they are still around today, who wish to point out that in the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, at no time does Jesus explicitly say, I am God. And this, for some, is definitive proof that Jesus wasn't God. But Jesus has no reason to claim to be God for the simple fact that such a claim means virtually nothing. Claiming to be God wouldn't even necessarily satisfy a curious Jew, much less anyone else who happened to be listening in. Again, because there were plenty of gods, the question is, which one is Jesus claiming to be? And what's remarkable is that as you work your way through the Gospels and as it's sprinkled throughout other portions of the New Testament, the one God Jesus does claim to be, and not once, but dozens of times, is the Lord. Remember, the name Lord means I am who I am. And every Jew knew this. And so when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and they are arguing with him about whether or not they have ever been slaves of anyone, Jesus tells them that even Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day in verse 57 of John chapter 8 we read this so the jews said to him you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen abraham jesus said to them truly truly i say to you before abraham was i am so they picked up stones to throw at him but jesus hid himself and went out of the temple now before abraham was i am say what? Oh, the Jews knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And so they picked up stones to stone him to death for it. And yet this wasn't the only time Jesus said things like this. In John chapter six, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter eight, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the gate. John 10 again, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. To Philip, Jesus says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. And if we step outside of the Gospels for just a brief moment to a passage that for those of you who are Christians and who are somewhat familiar with the Bible, you may be familiar with a passage in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul is exhorting Christians to absorb or to live by rather the humility that Jesus chose to live by. And as a result of his humility, humility unto death, God has decided to highly exalt him. And so in verse nine of Philippians two, we read this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. This is Jesus, the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Now with such um, a, a little bit of, um, biblical knowledge you can ask where is this coming from well this is believe it or not it is a quotation taken from the book of isaiah which is an old testament book and we've looked at isaiah at length in former episodes of this podcast but allow me just to read isaiah 45 verses 21 through 23 declare and present your case let them take counsel together who told this long ago who declared it of old Was it not I, the Lord? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now Paul knows what he's doing. And in Philippians chapter two, he says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. Do you see what is happening? The Lord is being embodied here in the person of Jesus back to the gospels for just a moment to Jesus Thomas says in John chapter 20 verse 28 my lord and my god and so there are others at other times who tell who claim that Jesus is god John even opens his gospel this way when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at his father's side, he has made him known. You see, Jesus has made the Father known. Remember Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, when the Lord said what it meant to know him and said, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. Okay, and how do we know what that would look like? Well, look at Jesus. He has made him known and as you may remember the entire book of revelation is a revelation of jesus christ an unveiling about who he really is and right here at the very beginning we are given a massive clue jesus is the lord of the old testament the creator and redeemer of israel and the savior of the world And how he chooses to image and worship the Lord by the way that he lives will speak volumes about the way his followers are to worship the one in whose image they are made. And Jesus' faithful witness to the truth will speak volumes about the faithful witness to the truth that he will call his followers to embody as well. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who we think God is and how we think God rules will directly shape the way we understand who we are and how we believe we are called to rule imaging which god then produces the best society because the reality is and the takeaway i want you to receive from this episode is worship the wrong god and you get the wrong society This, once again, is why Christian faith and our understanding of just who it is that God is or who it is that the Lord is is never something that can be limited to the private, internal, in-my-heart place. The Lord has a lot to say and a lot to offer to the personal, private, human heart, but he will not be contained there Because as a society, who we think God is and the way we think God rules will always shape the way we rule. And even if for a moment you think, what about societies who are atheistic? Well, they have made their claim. Atheistic societies simply buy into the fact that they themselves are the gods. And so they place themselves on top and live out of whatever standard they've decided is the best way to live. So they've simply combined their views with what they would imagine God's view would be if God happens to exist. But since he doesn't, we're in charge and therefore we act in effect as God. And so these concepts, again, may be brand new to you. If they are, I'm excited for you because they can and oftentimes will radically reshape your life for the better. And if you are interested in knowing Jesus and inviting him into the personal places in your life, as well as watching his vision for what he can and wants to do in societies as a whole, and in churches and in families, then stick this out with me. Because Revelation is going to have plenty to say about all of that and more. So thanks for continuing to tune in. See you next time.